Let's pray. Father, we have just collectively invited you who are here to come and bless your people. And that is always appropriate. We understand your omnipresence. We understand, as David did in Psalm 139, that we could not escape from your presence if we wanted to. We don't want to. We love to live in your presence. And we love to be dependent upon you. And so we are right now, Father. We are dependent to hear your word as your spirit wants us to hear it. Some of us will be dependent upon you to stay awake this morning. All of us will be dependent upon your spirit to leave here changed by your word, your sufficient word. And so we ask, Father, would you do these things for us this morning? And would you perhaps save some? These things we ask in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. We're kind of in at the end, I was going to say in the midst of, but let me refresh you by saying we are coming to the end of this extended series on the centrality of Scripture. This is part three. And this morning, I want to talk to you about the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, I think we can all agree that one of the marks of a Christian is that he or she loves the Bible. Indeed, it's often true that the most dramatic change that spontaneously occurs in a man or a woman when they first embrace Christ is that they suddenly find within them a hunger and a thirst for God's Word. From the time of conversion to the end of their lives, we might say they live under a new banner, namely sola scriptura. That is, we believers, whether new in the faith or old in the faith, we believe that Scripture alone creates faith in the sinner. We believe Scripture alone is the means of knowing God. We believe that Scripture alone is the authority over Christian faith and practice. And Scripture alone provides all the truth necessary to build a life that pleases the Lord. As a church, we love Scriptures. We love the Bible. In 1994, when we revitalized this church, we officially changed the name to Bible Church. We are Calvary Bible Church because we wanted everyone to know that the ministry of this church would be rooted in the Bible. We didn't want to be simply another church in the community. We wanted to be a church whose core foundation is the Bible. We were determined to be a church that encouraged all believers to embrace the centrality of Scripture over their lives to the glory of God and to their own stability of life and personal joy. But we never, ever in those days thought that that was somehow a novel idea. It wasn't a novel idea. Rather, we saw ourselves simply fulfilling the ancient directive that God had laid down in his word for his church. Hence, we come to the centrality of the word of God. 
There is perhaps nowhere in the Bible that lays out a stronger case for the centrality of Scripture than Paul's second letter to Timothy. In fact, you could probably pick anything that Paul has written and, uh, and find the centrality of God, but here, or, or, the, or the Word of God, but here it's explicit. So in 2 Timothy, we, uh, we want this morning to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. So if you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, I hope you came to a Bible church carrying your Bible. Uh, it wasn't long ago that a friend of mine went to church and uh, he walked up and, and one of the greeters noticed he had a Bible. And he said to him, he kind of pulled him to the side and he says, hey, you must be a Baptist. And the guy said, why do you think that? And he said, because you're carrying a Bible. And it was scandalous. Uh, to me, to hear that, somebody walking to church with a Bible would, would garner attention somehow. This should be the normal Christian life. We should, we should have our Bible on hand everywhere we go. And we do. We have our cell phones and all of that. Let's stand together and put an end to this rambling. <laughs> 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned them, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Our goal this morning, as I said, is to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. In recent weeks, we've learned about the authority of Scripture, that because its source is the very breath of God, it is inherently authoritative. By virtue of his deity, God has the right to command, can I say this word? Obedience. By virtue of his deity, by virtue of the fact that he is creator, almighty God, he has the right to command our obedience and trust. And he does so through his word, unequivocally, unapologetically. Also, since the word of God came from God who cannot lie, it is right to conclude that Scripture is infallible in its original autographs and should therefore be believed and trusted by his people. And not just trusted, but should be sought after, should be meditated upon. So we believe in the authority of Scripture. Second, we learn that the Scriptures are efficacious. That is, the Word of God is living and active. The scriptures are given to accomplish things in the world. And we see that all the way back in Genesis 1.1. God said, let there be light. And we didn't start millions of years of processes. Bam, there was light. God spoke and it happened. God's words are powerful. They are given to accomplish things in the world and in our lives and they never return to God void, as we saw in Isaiah last week. They are powerful to accomplish God's purposes. Hence, 
Paul says in 3.16 that the scriptures are uniquely, watch the word here, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The implication is that if we're going to be effective disciple makers, we need to engage in these four disciplines often with our people, with our children. And as we do, we can have confidence that by the ministry of the word of God, the man of God will be equipped for every good work. This doesn't just mean preacher. Now, specifically, Paul is speaking to Timothy, and man of God is a technical term used throughout the scriptures uh, relative to prophets and pastors, a few, but it doesn't mean the application isn't also for you. The ministry of the word of God, by the ministry of the word of God, you too will be equipped for every good work. And so we believe in the efficacy of scripture. And I, and I would just say at this point, beloved, sit back. I'd even be tempted to say, just close your eyes for a minute and marvel at the glorious gift of God's word. And yet there's more. The scriptures are authoritative, they're efficacious, and finally, scriptures are sufficient. The Calvary Bible Church, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, since there are not a lot of words that I'm going to draw on from this text to build the sermon upon, I, I want to offer some hooks to hang our thoughts upon so we can follow along more easily. So I want to talk to you about three things. Number one, this is, this is going to sound at first more like a theological lecture than a sermon, and that is by design. Um, and then the second point will sound more like a sermon than a lecture, I assure you. But it's so, listen, can I just say pastorally, you have to learn these things. Especially in our world. And if you know what's going, in the going on in the Christian community right now, you need to know these things. You need to get it deeper than just a surface understanding of the Bible. And it's up to you. And we, as pastors of this church, can give you instruction, and you should know that we're doing it in obedience to Ephesians 4, that we would equip you to do the work of the ministry and to stand firm in the midst of a generation that is becoming more and more hostile to what we teach and believe namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you have got to have a strong and weighty ballast in your ship. And if that's going to happen, you need to understand the authority of Scripture, the efficacy of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. It is taught in the Bible. And so I want to show you the definition of Scripture, the biblical grounds for Scripture, and then finally some applications of sufficiency, and you will find uh, about two-thirds of the way through the sermon, you will hear me give application and wonder, are we on the third point? I'll tell you when we're on the third point, but there's going to be application along the way, so I, I hope that helps with structure. Okay, we have a, a little bit of time here. Let's start with the definition of sufficiency. When theologians speak of the sufficiency of Scripture, they mean this, 
And by the way, you need to know this for your small group, so you should write it down. Scripture, this is the definition, Scripture contains all the divine words necessary for any aspect of human life. Scripture contains all the divine words necessary for any aspect of the human life. What does that mean exactly? Well, John Frame, in his excellent systematic theology, explains, listen, Scripture contains divine words sufficient for all life. It has all the divine words for the plumber and all the divine words for the theologian. Now, that may sound a bit strange because when we talk theology, generally, we don't also talk about plumbers. It seems like a disconnect. But this is intentional. This definition doesn't suggest that the Word of God contains some kind of technical manual for plumbers, nor a technical manual in any sense. Rather, it means, listen carefully, all eyes up here for a second. It means that a plumber finds in the Bible all God's words that are necessary for him to plumb to the glory of God in every circumstance. Just as the theologian or pastor finds in the Bible all God's words necessary for him to be a spiritual shepherd for the glory of God. And not just a spiritual shepherd, but every pastor is multiple things, and every person is multiple things. Yes, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a a father, I'm also a husband, I'm also a, praise God, a grandfather. And in all of these ways, God's word sufficiently instructs me how to be that, whatever that is in any given moment, to the glory of God. In the 1600s, the pastors and theologians of Westminster, England, wrestled with formulating a brief explanation of the doctrine of sufficiency. And this is what they came up with. And it is, it is, this is meaty, it's weighty, it's delicious (laughs) theologically. And so I had it printed for you in your bulletin. Westminster Confession declares this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time should be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Two things there at the end. He was addressing. One of them was the mysticism of various groups who were kind of pre-charismatic. And on the other hand, when he mentions traditions, he's specifically dealing with the Baptist, I'm sorry, not the Baptist church, the Catholic, sorry, (laughs) strike that from the recording, the Catholic church. And so all of this is to say everything God wants us to know about salvation and life as a follower of Christ, can be found in the Bible. That's what it means when we say the Scriptures are sufficient. Now, that brings us to the second point. Let's talk about the biblical grounds for the doctrine of sufficiency. 
And the reason we are here right now is because this is the text that we find ourselves in. Notice in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It's profitable. This means that the scriptures are beneficial. They are useful. In other words, they are to be used whenever we attempt to, and here's the other set of word, a small constellation of key terms here, whenever we attempt to teach, reprove, correct, or train in righteousness, which pretty much sums up all ministry, we are to use the word of God. More specifically to the context, Paul's concern is that the church trains men and women to lead, either as pastors or evangelists, counselors, disciples, deacons, small group leaders, or whatever, respectively. The scriptures should be the curriculum. This should be the core of what we teach. And if we use anything else but the Bible, those things should be used to accurately help us to understand accurately what the Bible says and how it applies. It is the believer's comprehensive source for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Second, notice that all four of these words refer mostly to verbal ministry. Teaching is a verbal activity. Reproving is done usually by a verbal encounter. Correcting usually takes place through the means and use of words. And while training in righteousness often involves modeling, it will usually also necessitate verbal instruction. Therefore, Paul is saying, in all your verbal ministry or in your discipleship conversations or your teaching or your preaching or your correcting or whatever it is, the word of God should be used. Now you may think, do we really have to say that to the modern church? Are you kidding? Everything is used but the Bible. The Bible has become so passe to modern Christianity. When, we, when you hear the word of God being referenced, people just check out. But if you hear something clever by some modern Christian writer, oh, that's wonderful. It grabs your ear. Even if it's, you know, I'm not saying it, it's necessarily wrong. I'm just saying that we get things mis misplaced. We don't realize the treasure, the value, the inexpressible worth of the Word of God. He's not saying the Bible is one of many options here. Notice that the ministry of God's Word is comprehensive. By the Scriptures, verse 17, a man, the man of God is completed and equipped. He's completed and equipped. Notice the terms here, complete and equipped. When you put those things together, the combination of the adjective and the perfect passive participle 
It may best be translated as, some of your versions say this, thoroughly equipped. These are not two things. This is one thing. You are being thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped. Or you could translate it, able to meet all demands. By it, you are able to meet all of the demands relative to life and godliness. And if that were not enough, Paul inserts the word every. The scriptures meet all the necessary demands to prepare, to equip for every good work. It prepares or equips people for all sorts and every kind. That's what he means by every, all sorts and every kind of good work. What good work does God want you to do? Does he want you to pray? God's word is sufficient for prayer. Does he want you to counsel someone? God's word is sufficient for that. Do you need to talk to someone about sin in their life? God's word is sufficient for that. You want to worship God? Everything you need to know how to do that is in his word. You're trying to make a, a difficult decision? You're trying to discern God's will for your life? The word is sufficient for that. All of these terms have a comprehensive comprehensive complexion about it. Paul wants Timothy to know that the core of his ministry is to teach, reprove, correct, and train people using God's all-sufficient word. In the scriptures, we find every command, every promise, every doctrine, every warning, every kind of wisdom and truth necessary to, and here's a list, to effectively equip the saints for ministry, to address their personal problems, whether they be relational problems such as marriage or family problems, or soul problems such as depression, eating disorders, panic attacks, various addictions, or to help them repent of sin, as I mentioned, or to show them how to worship in spirit and in truth, or to perform every other good work that would be pleasing to the Lord. The word of God in the scriptures are sufficient for all these things. The application then is obvious. And this is where, by the way, I warned you, you may think I'm changing points. I'm not. But the application at this point is obvious and I think needs to be stated here. And everything God calls you to do, here's the injunction. Rely on God's word. Do not lean on your own understanding. Consult God's word. Obey the scriptures. Minister his word. Meditate on the Bible. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the word of God, here's another way of saying it, let the word of God be the central pillar of your life. Now, just a, a caveat here. This is not Bible worship. This is Jesus worship. We know that all the power comes from him. But the instruction that gives us that power comes through his, his word. And I'll demonstrate that for you in just a minute in a different text. So, let the word of God be central in your marriage, in your parenting, 
the way you relate to coworkers, neighbors, enemies, and friends. Let all your life and ministry be ruled by the word of God. Why? Well, because the scriptures alone are sufficient to inform and train so that you can do everything God wants you to do in a manner that pleases him. It doesn't matter if you're a plumber or a construction worker or whether you work for a lighting company or for a church or for a nonprofit. And by the way, these are not only ver- the only verses in the context that point to the sufficiency of Scripture. Look back at verses 14 and 15, where Paul says, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned them, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says here that the scriptures make us, here's the phrase, wise for salvation. He says, in fact, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Now, the you here is Timothy, who has been a believer for a long time. And this is for you, who no doubt have been a child of God for a long time. I'm not speaking of all of you. I assume some of you don't yet know him. hope that will change today. When we think of salvation, we tend to think merely of the specific work of regeneration the Holy Spirit performs in a moment in time. And for you, that may be a past moment in time. We think of it as a singular moment when we were born again to a living hope, as the Apostle Peter describes it. But salvation is not merely about what happened to you back then when you first believed. Salvation is an immense and magnificent, a huge work of Christ that only begins on the moment you first believe. Now listen carefully beloved. When Christ redeems us, he begins the process of changing us. And as he progressively transforms us into the likeness of Christ, he saves us from many pernicious problems. For example, just think about this. If salvation the end of it is heaven. What would that be like? Will there be unreconciled relationships in heaven? No. Will children rebel against their parents in heaven? No. Will there be depression in heaven? Not a chance. Will there be eating disorders or church splits or panic attacks? or enslavement to some besetting sin. May it never be. It'll never happen in heaven. Why? Because all of these problems and a thousand others like them will finally be eradicated by the precious blood of Jesus and the power of his spirit. This, too, is part of God's salvation. 
that you systematically, as you put off the old man and put on Christ, Christ is saving you practically in practical ways. And by the way, I, was, I had my sermon written and printed and had rehearsed it in the office this morning and started looking for something else that I want to share with you. And I ran into this text that totally supports what I'm saying. 1 Timothy 6.12, where Paul tells the same Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Now listen to this phrase. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Now surely he knows Timothy has eternal life. And yet there is within salvation, within this eternal life, there is an already and there is a not yet. And Paul is saying, whatever in your life, Timothy, is not yet. Focus on that. Take hold of it. Grow in that. Change in that area. Become more like Christ in these things. I mean, Paul needed to grow. Paul said, it's not as though I've attained. <laughs> Timothy needed to grow. You need to grow. And you can grow because of the salvation that has been wrought in your heart and continues to roll on in your heart, causing you to become more like Jesus. So let me be clear on this. Think about this with me, Christian friend. Your salvation is perfect. And by that I mean it's complete in one sense. But this side of heaven, in another sense, it will always be incomplete. Through the blood and righteousness of Jesus, your sins have been perfectly and forever forgiven. And you are counted perfectly righteous in Christ. Amen? But God intends for you to have more. The completion of your salvation will come when you see Jesus face to face. He will wipe away every tear from your eye. And your battle, your warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil, can you imagine it will finally be won? But until then, we fight. We war on. We pursue sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. We grow in respect to our salvation. Salvation is not just pearly gates and seeing Jesus on the last day. It is now as you grow into the likeness of Christ. Listen to me. Jesus is committed to changing you now. Not just then. And his Holy Spirit is making all circumstances work together for good. Don't we love that phrase? But do you know what the good is? The good is, next verse, this is Romans 8, 28, by the way. 29 says that the good is this. He is conforming you to the image of Christ. That too is your salvation. Every time you put off some sinful habit, sinful speech, sinful attitude, and you put on in its place Christ. It is salvation working in you. It is the Holy Spirit 
changing you. And perhaps this is why Paul mentions to Timothy that there must be, listen to this phrase, training in righteousness. We are being trained and we are given the capacity to grow in righteousness. Today, this very day, you can grow and you can change. You can mature. You can become more like Jesus. You can move a little closer to what you will finally be in heaven. But here's the thing and the whole point. That will not happen apart from the Word of God. It will not happen apart from the Word of God. You bringing the Word of God to bear on your life, you asking others to help you bring the Word of God to bear on your life, you being totally open to the possibility that right now you need someone to bring the Word of God to bear on your life, welcome it, rejoice in it. Beloved, do not let any of you go astray be found to have an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, as some in the past week have evidently done. It will not happen apart from the Word of God. Beloved, do you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? More importantly, and perhaps the test of that is, are you reading Scripture? with a heart to know God, a heart to grow in your salvation, not earn your salvation, it's already been paid for. It's done, it's yours. And no one can take you out of the Father's hand or the Son's. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you becoming more like Christ. Think about it. The Scriptures impart instruction. You know what that is? That's teaching. The Bible makes us aware of our problems. You know what that is? reproof. In case you haven't caught on, these are his four terms. The Word of God is profitable for pointing in the direction of positive change. That's correction. And the Scriptures train us how to progressively grow in the likeness of God. And that is training for righteousness. And as our sanctification progresses, we increasingly taste and enjoy the practical benefits of our, in our relationships, our emotions, our purity, our holiness, our freedom in Christ. Listen, by, by the way, your freedom in Christ is not to push the envelope of temptation and sin. Your freedom in Christ is that you are free. You are free from the power of sin and temptation. You don't go anywhere near it because you don't want to by His grace and for his glory. As our sanctification progresses, we increasingly taste and enjoy these things. We begin to become progressively more of what we will be then. This too is on Paul's mind when he tells us that the scriptures make us wise for salvation. The scriptures are sufficient not only to save us, but to sanctify us in every way. 
Now, there's one more text that we should consider briefly, and this doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture is evident not only in the writings of Paul, but in the writings of Peter as well. So turn with me to 2 Peter just for a moment. 2 Peter, and this is chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Let me say it again, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 through 4, Peter says, May grace and peace multiply to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellency by, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise. I think the NAS says, his magnificent promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through sinful desire or through lust. Okay, the sufficiency of Scripture teaches us that God has not left his people lacking in any sense. In this passage, the Apostle Peter states this emphatically. Note the phrase, once again, all things, or your translation might say everything. God has provided absolutely everything a Christian man or woman needs for physical and spiritual life. Ed Buckley argues that if Peter is correct about this, then God has given us all the information we need to function successfully in this life. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to get a better job. You may get fired. Every essential truth, every essential principle, even if you are fired, everything you need to know to please the Lord in that circumstance, every essential truth, Every essential principle, every essential technique for solving human problems can be delivered in God's Word. You can draw them from God's Word. Now, let's be clear on this point. Peter is not teaching that Christians have access to everything that there is to know about everything. Um, how many angels can stand on the head of a pin? Well, first of all, who cares? But secondly, he's not going to tell us that. When I'm putting on a sprinkler head, how many times should I turn it before it breaks? The Bible's not going to tell me that. That's not a part of my sanctification. It is not necessary for me to please God. It's not going to tell the plumber what kind of, plum, uh, what kind of pipe to use or what kind of epoxy to use or anything like that. What time to show up for the job. Your boss will tell you that. What he is going to say to you is how you can function in that position in a manner that reflects the glory of God so that even as you plumb or build airplanes or whatever it is, your light will so shine before men that they will see your good works. Isn't that what he says here? Good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So Peter's not saying that the Bible teaches us everything that we want to know about everything. That's not the point. But rather that we have access to everything necessary to live every moment in a manner that glorifies God. 
And some have pointed out who don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, they have pointed out that this passage doesn't explicitly mention Scripture. That word is not there. It doesn't mention Scripture as the source of all things. Rather, it points to Christ as the source of all things. The text says that Jesus' or Christ's divine power has granted us everything for life and godliness. And of course, that is correct. But how do Christians lay hold of what Christ offers us? How do we lay hold? How do we access his divine power for living? Peter explains that this power comes through the knowledge of Christ manifest in his precious and magnificent promises. Now, what is that? It's the scriptures. Heath Lambert explains, the word scripture is not used here, but no faithful Christian interpreter of Peter's words can conclude that a person has access to this knowledge of Jesus Christ and his promises apart from scripture through the promises of God. And so here we are, back to the scriptures. How do we access the power? Through the scriptures. You don't need anyone to slay you in the spirit. Just read your Bible. Read it with a heart that wants to eat it and be nourished by it and be changed by it. Read it with a heart that wants to see the glory of Christ in it. These are the key texts for the sufficiency of Scripture. And there are many other that allude to it or point to it. Just in closing here, how about some applications of sufficiency? The children's teachers right now are about to have apoplectic fits when they realize I'm done so early. We can talk more if we need to. (laughs) Um, Applications. So here we go, just a few because of the sufficiency of Scripture, and I could, I could probably list ten. I've only got maybe three. But that's what your small group is for. You can develop that more in your small group. Number one, Christians do not need to lean on subjective impressions or on the, the counsel of someone who claims to have the gift of prophecy. You don't need that to discern God's will for your life. Everything we need to know about discerning God's will is sufficiently revealed in God's word. We have the word of God. Everything else is subjective. And consider this, anything that such a man, if he says anything that is consistent with the Bible, We don't need it. And if he says anything contrary to the Bible, we don't want it. Beloved, it is this doctrine. And the statement supported, a supportive statement would be the Westminster Confession that leads me and many, many others to declare, and and people leave the church on this every time I say this, Apart from the word of God, the Holy Spirit does not speak. The 
doesn't speak. Speak is the key word here. He does all kinds of things in our hearts. And don't misunderstand, I fully believe that when I have the opportunity to share the gospel coupled with a, a deep desire to be faithful, desire and, and excitement and joy over the opportunity to share the gospel, I believe that that was a divine appointment by the Holy Spirit, that he has brought it about and that he is working in the midst of that conversation. When I'm riding down the road, which I haven't done this in a long time, and I see a woman who's got a flat tire, and I feel this sense of, I've got to stop, I've got to help. Where'd that come from? Turns out she's an unbeliever, and she needs to know Christ. Where'd that come from? came from the Spirit. But I didn't need to have a mystical impression to come to the conclusion that I should help. The Word of God has already told me that. And the Spirit gives me the affection, the longing, the desire to obey Amen. and to serve in, in ways that are most unlikely if I wasn't filled with the Spirit. Enough said. Number two, Christians do not need to be unsure about how to please God with their lives. The doctrine of sufficiency gives us confidence that we will be able to find what God requires us to think or to do for hundreds of moral and doctrinal questions. We don't need to be unsure how to please God in any circumstance. We can know because the Bible informs us. And you know what? Part of that information is that when in doubt, hold. Stop. Stop moving. For goodness sake, stop. And at other times, plow forward. Plow forward. Do the hard thing. Uh, Romans 14.21 Whatever you cannot do in faith is sin. If you can't do it with a clear conscience, stop. Pray, ask for help, search the word. Everything you need will be found there in his word. Number three, when, believer, when a believer is asked to counsel someone with a difficult concern, he or she can be sure that the Bible is comprehensively sufficient as a guide for the disciplines of counseling. The Bible is comprehensively sufficient for understanding those aspects of human nature and those processes of change that are essential for wise and effective counseling. That's why we say, listen, you don't have to be certified by ACBC or anybody else to be a counselor. You probably already are one. The only question is, are you counseling from God's sufficient word? And if you are counseling for through God's sufficient word, then you can have confidence that on every question there will be sufficient answers. Here's the point. In the Bible, God has revealed everything we need for salvation and godly living. There's no reason to look elsewhere. In other words, the scriptures are, what's the word? Sufficient. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your sufficient word. And Lord, I, I 
love to dive into your word and read it, to search it, to use it. And praise you that you've called, you've called us not only to use it in other people's lives, but in our own. And some of the, the easiest principles to grasp in your word are the hardest ones to apply to ourselves, especially when it comes to sin, forgiveness, and bitterness, and etc. So I pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, grant us the grace to be doers of the word and not merely hearers only who delude themselves. Father, we ask you to deepen our church, strengthen us. We know that you are our keeper, and yet you have also commanded that we keep ourselves in the love of God. May it be true of us, Father. By your sufficient word, we pray. Amen and amen.